Hey, let's begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for that reassuring voice of you that we are your children, that you are our God, and you provide for your children. You provide us with your word, your living word, and we pray, Father, that as we turn to your word, that we would hear your voice, that your word would dwell in our hearts and change us and give us joy and courage today. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in this message series called Intervention, and really in the series we're looking at what is the unique good news of Christianity, and uh, we're going to keep doing that today, and I want to point out um, how unique the good news of Christianity is, because there are plenty of other world religions that um, says there is a God um, who will save you, and in and, and some of those religions, multiple gods that you can call out to, but the message of so many other world religions is this. It's the message that if you pursue God hard enough, if you devote yourself with with enough diligence, with um, uh, enough sacrifice, if, if you go hard enough towards your God, then your God will will save you. But what Christianity does is it reverses the pursuit. Um, and I want to say much about that today. Frederick Beekner was an old Presbyterian pastor and a really good author. And um, he, one of the things that he did is he compared the Christian, well, he didn't compare, he um, talked about how there are some similarities between, I guess that's comparing, um, between the, the good news of Christianity and, uh, and the fairy tale. Um, think about the, the good old Disney classic fairy tales. Um, think about that prince that would go to no ends to find that one young lady in the, in the entire realm whose foot would fit into that glass slipper and, and would pursue that lady to all ends. Think about the, the prince in Sleeping Beauty. and He's, he's slashing through all of the, the thorns that separate him and the castle where Sleeping Beauty lays. Think about the, uh, even the, the, the more modern story of Frozen, where half of the, the storyline is one sister that is braving the, the icy cold uh, to no ends to find her sister, Elsa. And world religions would say something like this, if you show that same kind of pursuit then your God or your gods will save you. But here's the good news of Christianity. Christianity says, actually, it's God who's doing the pursuing. It's God who says, I'm going to risk it all. 
I'm going to give it all so that I can pursue you. And when I get you, I'm never, never, never going to let you go. And what we're going to look at today is a classic story in the Bible on just that. It's in John chapter 4. So if you brought your Bible, turn it to John chapter 4. If you did not bring your Bible or don't have a Bible, you can find one in the seats in front of you, um, either right in front of you or to the side. You can find a Bible. And if you use one of our Bibles, turn to page 1052. And um, I'm going to set this story up a little bit. Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he was in the uh, countryside around Jerusalem known as Judea. And he was about to have to travel back north to his home neck of the woods in Galilee. And we're going to actually start with verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria, and that is an interesting line, by the way, as no Jew who traveled from Jerusalem or Judea up to Galilee ever had to go through Samaria. In fact, Jews would avoid Samaria. They could go through Samaria, but they would avoid Samaria. They would take a more roundabout course up north by traveling around the area of Samaria. Uh, Even though Samaria was the more direct route, there was such bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jewish people that had lasted for centuries. They would avoid it. And Jewish rabbis would never go through Samaria. And Jesus is a rabbi. So why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? That's the question. We came to a certain town. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And I just want to notice all of the social customs that Jesus is breaking here. One, he has this personal one-to-one conversation, no one else around, with a stranger woman. I mean, it's just breaking all kinds of customs right there. Two, she's a Samaritan woman, so it's even worse. Three, Jesus is thirsty. He asks her to get him water. So that means he would be willing to drink from whatever bucket or whatever ladle, whatever spoon, whatever device she would fill with water using her hands and hand it to Jesus. And so there's all kinds of Jewish purity codes that Jesus is just kind of violating (laughs) by uh, drinking from this vessel, which would have been considered unclean because this Samaritan woman had put her hands on it. So I want you to notice that John, the the writer of this gospel is just stacking up these details one after another about how Jesus is just smashing through these social customs. So he's pointing out 
one of two things. Either Jesus has completely lost it, or Jesus is completely with it, and yet he's on a very intentional mission. What is it? So look at what Jesus says next, verses 10, 13, and 14. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gifts of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he he would have given you living water. Verse 13, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, don't miss this detail. She does not want to keep coming back to this well to have to get water. Why is that? Why is that? Because generally, women like to go to the well. It was, it was the women's responsibility to, to get water for the family. That was the, the woman's duty. And so the well uh, functioned as a, as a social gathering for, for women. They didn't have to worry about men showing up at the well and getting in the middle of their conversations. And they could talk about, you know, whatever they want to talk about, the talk of the day. So it's interesting, this woman does not want to go to the well anymore. Why is that? Well, if you look back to verse 6, there's an important little detail at the end of that verse. Verse 6 says that it was about noon. It was about noon that Jesus met that woman at the well. Now, the interesting thing about that is noon is the heat of the day. And as the well functioned as the family gathering, uh, not the family gathering place, the, 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 the girl gathering place, they would come at the beginning of the day when it's not as hot or the end of the day when it's not as hot, and they would have their social time. This woman is showing up at noon. What does that tell you? It tells you that she is not welcome, that the other women of the town have, have shunned her, and she has to come when no one else is coming to the well. She is not welcome. Why is she not welcome? Well, if you know the story, you'll remember why. So let's look at verse 16. So Jesus told her, go, call your husband, and come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have had no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So I see this woman is uh, as a person of deep hurts, deep regrets. She's a failure in marriage. She's been chasing after different men. And she's doing whatever it takes to deal with her loneliness And every time she comes to this well, she doesn't want to come to the well. Why? Every time she comes to that well, it's a reminder of her mistakes. It's a reminder of her failures. It's a reminder that no other woman in the town wants to be around her. She's an outcast. And she's saying to Jesus, oh, if I could just put 
this whole life behind me and not have to come to this well to remind me of it. She's at rock bottom. Here's the question. What do you do when life is at its worst? Here's the good news of Christianity. When life is at its worst, you can count on God's best. When life is at its worst, you don't have to worry about God giving you second rate from, from, from Him. His, his second best. His third best. You don't have to worry about God kind of shortchanging you when life is at its worst. Even when life is at its worst because of mistakes that you've made. When life is at its worst, Jesus shows us you can count on God's best. One of the great promises of Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Not that the energetic and unburdened can't come to Jesus. (laughs) But here's the deal. When life is going well, when life is going great, people generally do not run to Jesus. And and think about what Jesus could have said. He says, come to me when you're weary and burdened, I will give you rest. He could have said something different. He could have said, oh, you're weary and burdened now? You didn't come to me beforehand? Now that you're weary and burdened, come to me? You think? Jesus doesn't say that. He says, no, 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 no. Come to me now, and I will give you rest. Just this great promise. You can count on my best work in you when you're weary and burdened. And when life has gone wrong and when you've been the responsible party, Jesus says, you can count on my best work. And so this morning, what I want to look at is three things this story says about receiving God's best. And the first thing is this. When life is at its worst, Jesus has to go through your neighborhood. He has to go through your neighborhood. If the social custom was to avoid Samaria when traveling from Jerusalem up to the the area of Galilee, why does it say that Jesus had to go through Samaria? Why as the story said that Jesus had to go through her neighborhood. Well, had Jesus not seen her? In, in his divinity, in, in with, with the power of the Holy Spirit in him, had he not seen her, that woman, day after day, noontime, afternoon time, in the heat of the day, going to that well, rejected, despised by the community, beaten down by life and and miserable. Of course he had. Jesus had to go through her neighborhood because he was on a mission of intervention. And we need to know that when life has beaten us down, when life has beaten you down, when you are worn out, when you are tired and wearied and burdened, Jesus is going to seek you out. He will be on a mission of intervention. See, that's how interventions work. Interventions work when someone else starts it. There may be a point in time when you have said, oh, I need an intervention. 
But interventions, that's not really how they work. They work when someone else intervenes, when someone else starts it. And you can know that Jesus, when life is beating you down, Jesus is already seeking you out. He has to go through your neighborhood. He will go through your neighborhood. But we have to look for Jesus because the way that Jesus responds to us likely will be different than the way that he responded to this woman. Our interaction with Jesus likely will be different than his interaction with this woman, her experience uh, with Jesus, where she just goes to the well and lo and behold, there's Jesus. Our experience likely will be different than that. So we have to look for how Jesus is intervening in our life. So what does Jesus do so that when he is doing it in our life, we will recognize that it is him. Leads us to our second point about receiving God's best. And it's this. Jesus will go the distance to remove idols from your life. He will go the distance. He will go as far as he needs to go, travel as far as he needs to travel to remove idols from your life. See, what did Jesus really do to or in this, this woman's life. Well, he, he challenged her idols. He said, go, go and bring back your husband. And when he told the woman that, he knew well and good that she had already had five husbands and was with a man who was not her husband. So what, what's he doing? Is he just kind of poking at her to make her feel bad, feel guilty, and beat up on her even more? No. He's confronting the inner idols in her life. Why is this woman in and out of relationships like this? I mean, her, her immorality is, is kind of apparent in the story. It's not that she just is having bad luck in life and her husbands keep dying and then another man mercifully steps up and says, oh, I will take care of you. I will, I will be your husband. That is, if that were the case, this, this town that she's in would be rallying around her, would be supporting her, but they're not. She's an outcast. Her immorality is apparent in this story. She has some inner desire, some inner yearning, some inner void, and she's just turning to the wrong direction to fill that inner void, and she's just filling it with men in relationships that are failures. And they cannot fill this void that is in her. So let's think about what is an idol. You know, shows like American Idol, they have um, kind of conditioned us to think about idols as something that we aspire, that we want. I mean, we... We, someone or something that we, we, we want or we value in our, our life, that we prize. But an idol goes a little deeper than that, I think. And so let's just talk about what is an idol. A few thoughts. An, an idol is anything other than God that we treat practically as the highest value in our life, what we want more than anything. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. So it's, it's that thing that inspires you just greatly in life. The thing that excites you. If there's something in life that excites you on an ongoing fashion, that fills you with enthusiasm for life on an ongoing fashion more than God, then that's an idol. Tim Keller says that an idol is anything that you seek 
to give you what only God can give. And that's what this woman is doing. She's, she's seeking to fill this void with something that cannot fill that void. It's something other than the God. God's supposed to fill the void. And she's seeking other things to fill that void. So an idol is something that we say about, if only I had that, then I will feel significant and secure. If only I had that, oh, things would be so much better. I would feel secure in life, safe in life. That's an idol. How do we identify our idols? So what I do is I, I think back to that issue of security. You know, I, um, I have things that um, I can use to measure if my life is going down the right track. <laughs> how, do I, how do I think, Greg, is your life going down the right track? And, and how I get off the... God's path is when I start thinking about security. What makes me feel secure? And I'll come up with all kinds of crazy things. What makes me feel secure? Well, you know, getting a raise, you know, or, or getting praise from people or, or whatever, you know, and that, maybe that's true for you. You know, oh, you get acclaim at work or you get recognized by a teacher. Um, ooh, I, I'm feeling secure. I'm feeling built up and secure. Maybe it's that successful relationship that you know, oh, I'm feeling secure. Now, feeling good about those things do not make them idols. None of those things will necessarily be idols. They can be very good things, right? They become idols when we use those things to measure whether or not our life is on the right track more so than our relationship with God. In other words if God isn't my number one indicator of whether or not my life is on the right track, then I've made an idol out of something. To determine your idol or idols, you only have to think, okay, what gives me a greater sense of security in my life than my relationship with God? I think about that song that we sung God's speaking to us who we are. We are His. That's where our security lies. We have to sing that to ourselves over and over again for it to sink in, to remind ourselves who we are. That's why it's important for us to come here on Sunday mornings together so that we can remind one another whose we are, where we are, where we find security in life, ultimate security that goes beyond our status, our success, our accomplishments. That goes beyond our compensation, our achievements, our ultimate security. We have to remind ourselves, one another, boy, that is in the Lord. That's in the Lord. And I want us to, back to to idols, I want us to notice this really important point. Idols almost always are good things that have become the best things. Generally, you don't try to take something, I don't know, pretty lousy and turn it into an idol. You know, we try to take something good that can be valuable, and then we elevate it to a higher position than it should be. 
you know, very rarely will someone think, okay, is my life going on the right track? Well, let me think, am I getting drunk enough? Or, you know, we don't do things like that. Is my life going on the right track? Uh, let me pick something bad. Uh, am I lusting after women enough? I, you know, we don't do that. We, we, don't, we don't spend too much time chasing after really lousy things and turning them into idols. We, we chase after good things and we make them into best things. That is our struggle most often with idolatry. And we see Jesus intervening in our lives when he starts working on our hearts and pointing out these idols. Now, what does Jesus do when he confronts our idols? Because, uh, you know, let's face it, Jesus is, he's, he, he's quite fine with poking around in the tender issues of our life. <laughs> and it can be uncomfortable, it can be painful, and Jesus is, Completely fine doing that. So maybe this morning you're thinking, I don't, I don't know if I want this intervention from Jesus or not. Because <laughs> he's quite fine with making you feel uncomfortable. Well, here's what Jesus does when he points out our inner idols. He promises us something better. So this woman took romantic and intimate relationships with men and puts them in this highest place of value in her life. And Jesus promises something better. What is it? He promises living water. What does Jesus mean by living water? It sounds good initially. I like the sounds of that. What does he mean by it? So we actually have to look a little further in the Gospel of John to find out what Jesus means by living water. Look at chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him would later receive. So Jesus means the Holy Spirit when he talks about living water. He wants to give us the Holy Spirit. And sometimes when we talk about kind of spiritual things like the Holy Spirit, we kind of stay up here in vague world, and it's hard to think about what does that mean for us. So practically speaking, what does it mean that Jesus wants to give us his Holy Spirit? This is our third point about receiving the best from God. God gives us the Holy Spirit so we can have intimacy with him. He gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can know that God is with you always, so that you can walk with God always, so that you can talk to God, so that you can hear from God and have this relationship with God. And that's what Jesus wants for this woman, for her to be in this real relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus knows that is where she will find real love and real life that will not disappoint her. So we need to notice another thing from this story, and it's about intimacy with God. Intimacy with God is built on truth. So first it's built on the truth of God's love for us, and that's what Jesus shows in the story by going out to this woman that is completely outcasted by her village and having to go to her. 
being compelled to be on this mission of intervention for her. So first, it's built on the truth of God's love, but second, it's built on the truth about ourselves, which, again, can be kind of tender, because Jesus is going to feel free to poke around in areas that are sensitive to us. Jesus will speak the truth to us, and it can be hard, because... We often think that we know more, or at least we act like we know more about life than Jesus does. I mean, he's teaching her a truth about life. Don't you see, woman, that these, these relationships with other men that you're pursuing, if you build your life on those, they will let you down. You will be let down. At some point, it will happen. This life lesson. And so he, same thing, he kind of goes up to us and he's willing to poke around and say, don't you see, if you build your life on your career, your accomplishments, your successes, you doing good, if you build your life on your family, any of those things, you will be let down. If you build your life on having successful kids, you will be let down good grades, whatever it is, you will be let down. If it's you build your life on these great relationships and friendships that you have, if that's what you're building your life on, you will be let down at some point or another. And we think, Jesus, you're crazy. We know more about life than you do. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, no. And Jesus is in his pursuit to reveal these inner idols. He will just keep going and keep going, just like he did with this woman. Jesus is willing to do that for us. And so there's a couple of questions that I wanted us to think about, wanted you to think about in response to this story. So first question, when Jesus meets you at the well, will you show humility? And really a particular kind of humility, and probably the most difficult kind of humility. See, humility, many people praise humility. They, they value humility. You'll hear people say, yeah, I like humble people. I like people that, that aren't egotistical and aren't braggy, right? We don't really love being around braggy people. We like humble people. We want to be people that just use others to get ahead in life. We like people who are humble in their ambitions, Here's a thought from G.K. Chesterton. There are many people who are humble in their ambitions, but they're prideful in their convictions. They are very likable people, (laughs) but they think they are experts in what will bring them joy and satisfaction in life. They think they're experts in what life is all about. That's being prideful in your convictions. I've talked to plenty of people in my time as a pastor. Friends, neighbors, people around town, acquaintances. Man, why don't you go to church? You know, I just I don't, I don't really care about going to church. It's just not a value in my life. That's what I hear. They, there's just no interest. They don't believe that the water is all that refreshing. Other things are refreshing to them. 
And what do they do? They edge God out of their life. And this is, this is, it's one of the most difficult ways to show humility, humility in our convictions. And maybe you've seen this before. What is ego? It's, it's this. It's edging God out. Being prideful in our convictions. So here's what we need to repent of. Thinking what we thinking that we know what is most refreshing. It takes incredible humility. Like the statement from John Piper. John Piper writes, it is radically humbling to confess that the source of all joy resides outside of ourselves. So will you be open to this idea that if you center your life on Christ, if you pursue him more than anything, that everything else in life will work out? Will you be open to that? That's just, that's the first question. We just be open to that. That Jesus works our life out as we pursue him more than anything else in life. And here's the second question. And I know it's going to come across as just kind of pastor talk. Yeah, pastor, we've heard that before. And it's this. Will you give Jesus time to meet you at the well? Will you give him time? Will you make time in your day Will you commit to prayer? Will you commit to reading the Scriptures, reading God's Word? See, Jesus changed this woman's life because she made time for that conversation. Well, you can read the rest of the story in John chapter 4 on your own about how He changes her life. But He changed her life because she made time for the conversation at the well. I keep thinking this thought. You making time in prayer, you making time in reading scriptures, that may be the biggest measurement on how much you really believe that Jesus is living water and not other things. You making that time for God. That may be the biggest measurement on whether or not you really believe that Jesus is living water. You can edge God out by way of your convictions and you can edge God out by way of your time. And I think both probably are equally effective in edging God out. It takes time for us to hear Jesus point out those inner idols because, face it, we've spent most of our life in (laughs) building up those idols in our life. It's going to take some time for Jesus to help bring them down. It takes time. We make time. And I think one of the problems with Make, us making time, quite honestly, is as we put the burden on ourselves, we think, man, am I just wasting my time? Am I just failing at this when I spend time praying? I don't seem like getting out of it. When I spend time reading the scriptures, I don't think I'm understanding anything. It doesn't seem like I'm getting anything out of it. And we put the burden on us. We're like, am I doing this well enough? I don't think I am. And we just kind of start edging God out by way of our time. And I turn back to the story about Jesus making time for this woman, her making time for him, but how he pursues her. And, and I ask this question of ourselves, when, when we make time for Jesus, do you think that Jesus is really going to waste that time? I mean, despite what we feel or what we think about the time we're spending with Jesus and making, making room for him, do, you, do we think that he really is going to 
waste that time with us. And I think we need to put, allow Jesus to take that burden of the time that we give him. He doesn't mind taking that burden of making good use of our time. Do you really think that he's going to let you down? Don't miss out on the burden that Jesus places on himself in the story. He, he travels to Samaria. He's tired from his journey. He goes to this well and he is thirsty. Do you know there is another time in the scriptures where Jesus tells us, I am thirsty? It was on the cross. It was on the cross. This is how devoted Jesus is to you. He became thirsty, thirsty unto death, so that he could refresh you. He will not let you down. He will not stop until he refreshes you. Listen, if he was willing to leave his loving home in heaven with God the Father and come all the way down to this threatening place of earth, there is no place Jesus will not go for you, and there is no stopping him. Frederick Bigner, that pastor I mentioned earlier, he writes this about Jesus. I love this. He says, once we have seen him in a stable, Jesus being born in a stable, once we have seen him in a stable, we can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous Depths of self-humiliation, he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind, his wild pursuit of you. This means there is no place where we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break in to and recreate the human heart. Because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong and just where we expect him the least, that he comes most fully. My friends, Jesus will not let you down when you meet him at the well and make time for him. And be open to the idea that he may just know way more about life than we do. And when we allow him to do his work of tearing down those inner idols, so that, so that, so that he can give us living water. Let's turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we thank you that you do not give up on us. We thank you that you do not condemn us in our weaknesses and in our sin. We thank you that you show us grace and mercy. We thank you that you will never turn us away. We thank you that you are pursuing us ever before we even think of pursuing you. We thank you that you show up in places and in situations in our life where we just never would expect you to think that you would show up. And you save us. Give us courage. Give us hope. 
pray this in your powerful and loving name. Amen.